0: Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein. This week we're gonna, our share will be about dealing with modernity, the internet, science, the metaverse. Is science problematic to believe in both science and religion? By the way, I think it's honestly silly when people ask me this question. I say, is science a contradiction to religion? Um, who made science? It's like looking at the mechanic and saying, who made the mechanic? Who made the car? The science of the Kalim are the, is the physics of how the Rabbani Shalem is the Tev of how he runs the world. Ball games, taking kids to modern entertainment. What about clothing? Is clothing what our grandparents, gasp? look at our clothing? Or on the other hand, if we would have our children dressed like our Babas, that would create more problems. Sneers as well. We're going to have Rabbi J.J. Schachter, the eminent Talmud and historian, speaking about the past, how we've dealt with it.
1: One would find a whole mahalach that says, you know, we have to, we have to be firm and strong and remain uh, committed totally to Ruch Yisrael Sabah and totally reject anything that we consider to be alien that doesn't emerge out of the Daliramis of Torah and Halacha. And on the other hand, there were those, like right, Rav Sajidwaran and like the Raman and many others in medieval times, who said, you know what? Taka, There's something here that might be useful for us and that we could benefit from. And this has been an ongoing debate.
0: We're going to have to speak about answering science, the Big Bang, Age of the Universe, should we be frightened of these questions. We're going to have Dr. Alan Kadish. He's the president of Turo and we chose him because Turo has 6,000 from the students in the sciences, because medicine is a science, psychology is a science, uh, certainly pharmacology is a science, etc. Pharmacy is a science. He has, uh, I think, 10 different medical schools.
2: So I think the Big Bang Theory could be interpreted as evidence of Hashem creating the universe.
0: We had a number of callers who complained that we did not have sort of the standard yeshiva or chabad um, view of how to deal with these questions. Instead, we went to you know, professors and historians, etc. So, post putting up the program, we we got Reb Chaim Vishnevsky, who speaks all over the world about this in yeshivas, etc. And we inserted this interview. We're going to have uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, the great historian, again speaking about how we've dealt with the past.
3: I would say uh, they have not. We have not been uh, overly successful because we have not come up with a formula that is acceptable across the board as to uh, how to deal with modernity or even how to define modernity.
0: We're going to have for the OU NCSY David Bashevkin. He's in charge of all education at the OU.
4: I think American Yiddishkeit is handling modernity extraordinarily well. What I'm worried about is that they're not handling materialism well. I think that we've become too enamored with wealth and we're associating wealth with what it means to be an authentic Jew, and that really scares me.
0: We're going to have Dr. Elisheva Kalbach, eminent historian, the head of the Jewish uh, Studies Department at Columbia University. She's going to be speaking historically how we've dealt with it.
5: Um, Looking back on hundreds of years of Jewish history, I would have to say that the Jewish world has been very selective about what aspects of modern technology it will embrace, and to what ends it will use that technology.
0: And then talking about the Internet, we're going to have Dr. Eli Shapiro. He's speaking at the Aguda Convention. He speaks at Tara Masaira, Tarema, Saira, Tarema das, the yeshivas, about being a good digital citizen and making good strategic decisions.
6: The education piece is critical, and it can't just be general education. It has to be specific, specific communities, specific families, helping them understand their dynamics.
0: Not everybody agrees with this. Here's Rabbi Waxman at the Internet as if how to deal with the Internet. And he is... And just as a chazara, here's what Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg said about his experience with the Internet.
3: I'll tell you this,
7: and, and maybe I shouldn't be saying this publicly, and maybe you've had the same experience you've been to the B'chayim, the Sar HaTorah. There's a sign hanging when you go into the B'chayim's apartment of Benebra. And it says, smartphones are also, and they're also to bring into the apartment. And then you get a bracha from the B'chayim, and a moment later you get a WhatsApp picture from members of the family of you getting the bracha on WhatsApp from their smartphone to your smartphone. So just explain to me. Explain to me the reality. There's a sign in the apartment of the Sar HaTorah, the double Hador. It says, it's us, we're no, Don't bring it into the apartment. And then, Bufa, the direct members of the family, who are running the whole Chatser, sends you a picture getting a bracha from their smartphone to yours on the very app, which has been offered using the very internet, which denies you a and
0: And is this the way to deal with it? Here's from Teg, who says how the Torah uh, Messiah is sorry, not good to deal with it.
4: When it goes to the way, I will tell you now, with Achrayas, the Maria was not consulted and is not aware of the fact that a good has a Twitter feed. I'm telling you, facts.
0: So our goal is to show is that hopefully, going forward, there's going to be a better way. By the way, before we go to our program, we're going to ask the riddles. This week we will have five riddles. The Kavit Hanukkah, Yom of Taira, Taira Shabal so it'll give you something to, you know, maybe learn, try to figure out very, very different uh, riddles, very exciting. If you go through all of them, you'll cover a chunk of uh, Holchus Hanukkah. But I want to say Dvar Torah about this concept of dealing with modernity. And I've said many of these different pieces before, so forgive me if you're hearing them again. When Yaakov and Esav meet in that great encounter in Parsha's Vayishlach, Esav says to Yaakov, come with me to Seir, my brother, let's walk together. And what does Yaakov respond? He says, "Yeshli Likol, I have everything. Esav says, yes, Shlerath, I have everything. What does it mean I have everything? There's nothing, nothing, nothing I need from you, Esav. What's he really saying? He's going beyond your two, you know, your Hamorim and your, your cows and your goats. He's saying, what does Esav bring to the world? Esav is Western civilization. It's Harvard and Yale and Stanford. And it's Longfellow And it's the poetry and the literature and the politics, and it's the Instagram heroes, etc. What does Yaakov say? Yeshli Kyle, I have everything. I'm not missing anything of yours. What happens right after that? Yaakov halach Yaakov was able to up to Chepin for Asav. He could leave Asav when he loses that inferiority complex, and he says, Yeshli Kyle, I don't need anything of yours. Now chachmabagayim tamin. There's definitely there's some wisdom there. There's ways to earn a living over there. But as far as what the Torah teaches us as a mission in life, the purpose of creation, purpose of our lives, that, Yeshli Liko, we don't need your ethicist. In fact, what does he say? In love the taryag mitzvah Rashi says, "In lovengart," and sochsidim taich. You know how I was able to do it in lovengart. The taryag mitzvah Shamarti? because Vayhili shor vachamur. Loven, atoyske kook tsem When when he looks to, like a shor vachamur, at that point you could say yeshli koil vayelch yakiv ledarkai. I don't know if you remember. Last year we taiched something beautiful. Kisaitse l'molchama alei vecha. So the maral always says that molchama also refers to parnasa lechem. Is mil- milchama and lechem the same language? It's a war to earn a living. Anybody who works knows that, right? All the fathers and mothers listening know that. Kids don't know it yet. Shivyei, the yeshiva boy goes out and he's successful. He's very bright. We're going to do a program soon about dealing with affluence, something that communities, for the first time in thousands of years, were dealing with. So new Shulchan Aruch going to be written about that. Who does it say? He's successful. What does he say? He goes out to the world, and suddenly he says, you know, I thought they were the greatest things. I, I, I never saw Bezos before. I never heard of him when I was in Yeshiva, or Musk, or Gates. Pick your, pick your contemporary, successful uh, tech hero. The chashaktaba, you fall in love with it and you start saying, you know, my rabbayim taught me tyra, 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 and that I see these things besides tyra, there's technology and science and bioscience, medicine, etc. And great, you know, great wealth and great comfort, etc. The So what does the tyra say? Ve'sira esimla Take off the shiny clothing. What does it mean? Take off the shiny clothing. I had the opportunity to eat lunch with Gates, with a few people, right? It was a small crowd in him, a small curated group of people. And he comes with an advance with a, with a, a image management team. You know everything you do with him if pictures if he's're taken with him he has to release them first and etc in fact they put out a small movie about him a day in the life among many 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 things and I looked at it I was kiikling with Galata so you walk in first of all you know what is Bill's like say the Hayin what does he do in the morning? Oh when he gets up in the morning he pulls out like a, a thick book. A few times the size of a Gemara Baba Basra, and it's titled something like, you know, um, The Algorithmic uh, Numeral Equations uh, to Understand Artificial Intelligence, etc. <laughs> it's pages of uh, this is what he reads when he wakes up in the morning. Yeah, where's his coffee? He, he reads this. Like the Shtalav of a person, Mamish Muraimim Mikalish. Then what happens? He gets divorced. He had an affair with this one and with that one, with the Tzvetim at the dritta Suddenly you look at this hero, of hey, Sira Simla shich, ame, is this really a Mahalach that our Rabbi, we look at our reb and we look at this, we say, this has a Tzor, then they get one of our Rabbi him. Or a Bezos, he, you could not miss full love what he did. I mean, Amazon, who doesn't use Amazon today? I and mean, who goes to the, to the store anymore to buy a Kasha? You know, a, <laughs> a shoe liner, whatever the case may be, right? It's incredible what he's accomplished. I have a new hero. I have a new religion oh wait he's he's also something. he's sending pictures of his to people over the web. You, one of your rabbin would ever do something like this or this, this Elon Musk now he's the new hero with Tesla and with rockets and Mices I saw the, I, the letter his ex-wife his, his first wife he had five children with her she was not too bright she signed a post nuptial with him that it allowed her nothing she put a letter on the web she said "I I, ma- I was married to one of the Wealthiest man in the world today. He's the wealthiest man. I have five children with him because of the post nuptial, I got nothing. So I'm living in a rented apartment with my five kids. All I want is a house. Now I checked again. The letter was taken down. I think he must have given her a house because he was embarrassed. You have Epsa Rebbe, You have Epsa Rosh Hashiva, You have Epsa somebody uh, a Mashbia who had was worth three hundred billion dollars or hundred of it. Wouldn't give his wife a house. I'm all so what does it say? He siresh the golches roisha, and then the asusas si parnel. Look at what it really is. And then the What does it say? The lachel Base? What is it? Nor does watch the Vart Or the high Excuse me. says strip all the moralities, the Look what it is. These people have figured out a way to make money. Is this really, or, or to advance technology? Is this something that we should look at with a sense of hero sefelton zepis paisei? So again, going back to science, I mean, what is science? Istako ubari alma. Science is the way the exact mechanics and physics, how the world works, and where did he get it from? He got it from the Torah. Mushal de Gumara says if we didn't have the Torah, we would learn snias michasol, we would learn zeiluf and Anamala. What is the we would learn Snias from a cat? Cat is very cleanly and where it has to go to the base. Like he say how it does it, but snias vechulu. what's it telling us? We would learn this from this and this and and uh, and 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 Xayla from anemala. What's the message? The message is is that the Torah is not some forced overlay on creation. It's like let's take a set of rules and twist the arms of the bria and somehow put the Torah on top of it. On the contrary, the Torah just reveals the secrets of bria. Look at a Chatzel. We say it in. We would see that in H. Why? Because it's tachel baraisu barialma. What's my point? My point is is that we often look at science and as yeshiva bachar and we get scared. Oh my goodness, it's not. We'll hear from Dr. Kadish. Now, Kalal Yisrael, historically, we never darshan darshaned, that's our Kabbalah. What does the Medrish say? Until all of my all what do we say? Our Kabbalah is we don't darshan it. If we were darshan it, there would be mesechtis and mesechtis and mesechtis. And in all these mesechtis, they would explain all the kashas. We are the dinosaurs also. This is the fifth or sixth or tenth or twentieth. We don't know how many version of earth till we got it. Rabbi Nisham says, this is the one I like. And all the briefs that were there before, etc. Well, we never spoke about it because our Kabbalah is not to speak about it. But it doesn't scare us. These are the kalim that the Rabbini Sholmuz said, a grass doesn't grow until a malach comes and hit him on the head and says gadel. That is physics, and that is the science. So it's Chanukah, it's a time to say, we aren't afraid of science, we aren't afraid of modernity, we aren't afraid. Now, it doesn't mean they don't need great discretion in how they're handled. Because, for example, yet when we're not afraid of science, we're very afraid of the bars at the universities or the preachers at the universities, or the intermingling, or the professors who are for the most part, notwithstanding the fact that the science is not a steward to us. So we're very afraid of the culture that comes along with the science, but Klal Yisrael is not intimidated by the science it never was and never should be. It's in Darum and Arum that, that really worries us. And I think that even though I'm not saying something on the parsha, I think since it's Hanukkah, and this is the time where Klal Yisrael met the Yavanim, it's, it's, Few thousand, two thousand years later, and can I hear the Jews in America be Look at us—we have doctors and lawyers and scientists. The lessons of Hanukkah, the Nitzuach over the Yavanim, which means chachme yevanes—I don't think at any time in our history has been burning so bright, like with the way Klal in America, living in two worlds, we are the ones Hanukkah lives in us in our in our every day. Like, you know, somebody told me he went to court and uh, he was in Delaware on a big case. He says there were three different law firms there and they're waiting for the judge to come in. There was like a break by lunch. He said three different law firms and each firm, a lawyer took out the Dafyaimi to learn while they were waiting in Delaware for the thing. The Heir of the Chashman that they lit, is burning in us stronger than ever by the Eden in America today. Let's go to our riddles. Like we do for every yom tif, Chanukah will end, ask a number of more riddles to give you something to be busy with. Chanukah is a time to be marbabelim edatoyer will give you an opportunity. So here's the first one. The Sharetzian brings the primagodim in Tafresh samar Beis Beis that if a person benched the first day of Sukkis and if he got to make Shekhi anu, comes the second day he can't make Shekhi anu anymore. That's it. It's sort of like a, a a fruit. You know, a new a new fruit comes out, a star fruit. And you didn't you forgot to make the the first time you eat it, the second time I'm sorry, it's not it's not Khadash anymore, right? No more Shahyanov, no more khiyas. Mishtubur argues, but that's what a shah holds. Now here's the problem. The ochas Khashanaka, Simon tafraish Ayin Vav Sifalov says that if somebody lit the Meneira an and he forgot to say Shahiyanu the first night, what does he do? He says it the second night or the third night, whatever he remembers. So the is why by by lulav do we say if you forgot it to make the bracha of the first on the first day that you made until full of sorry like a priest not new anymore it's no more Shechianu. say the same thing by neiris once you already did the first night come the second night or the third night it's not a Shechianu anymore kasha on the prima here's a second question the shachonarich and tafresh ayin aleph Sivches says if you have a deer that has a number of a house that has a few entrances, well, it sides on two streets. You have to light uh, by both psachim. Why? Somebody's gonna pass by and they're not gonna see that, they're, they're gonna see that there are no nearest lit. They're not gonna know that on the other street you did or the other side you did. So the halach is you don't, uh, you have to light on both. But you only make a bracha on one of them. Why? Because you don't make a bracha on a mitzvah that was misukin bibnei Somebody's going to be chayish. They didn't do it because they don't see the other side. For a chash, Shver the shachan aruch in Yeriday is Yud of says somebody finds shachtzabehem and he finds a bempakua needs shchita and the shachan say why do you have to it? because of Marasaiin. somebody's going to see it's like the brothers they can think you're eating avim and or they think we're eating pasanavela. And Rabbi Kiva brings over there, shame Harajba, that you make a bracha on that Shchita. So the question is, the reason we do it over there is also because of chshad. People are going to see you shoot it of Ben Paku and eat it. There's Chayshish. Oh my goodness, what's he doing? But you make a bracha. Why by Neiris don't you say that on the second side you should make a bracha? Because you see from there that you make a bracha with By Chanukah it says, Ein By Ben Paku it says, yes That's the second riddle of Chanakah. Here's riddle number three. The Ramon in Arachayim Kuf Pei Zayin and Tafresh Pei Beis Aleph says that if you forgot, Alanisim Anisim amazin when you say Harachman, you say, Harachman Hu Yasel You just put it at the end of benching. question is, the Gemara in Brachas Tafsamach Samachamal Aleph says, Hoyce Ishtay Muberes. V'yomar Hirotsun Shetelit Ishti Zacher, it's a Tfila Shav. And the Gemara says, why? Because Ein Maskirin maise so even though the nest could change things like it did for Leia, Dina, the, the boy turned, Yosef turned into Dina, Ain his spalov because it's Maisa Nisim. So how were they Mesakin, Bakashas <in Chinese> Nisim, somebody who forgot to say Allah Nisim, when it's a Beferish Allah in two places, that what's the that when the Gemara says in Brachis, that you are not you're not misspal for Nisim. Riddle number three. Riddle number four. The Shulchan Aruch and Tefreish Ayin Aleph, the Machabe says, Yemadlig near Chanukah bebeis and Ybench mishum persume Minisa. We make a bracha on in, in the shul, and the Makai is a Rivash that says, Dvoi may hal the reshchaydish mevaruchin aleph. Even though it's only a minig, but since reshchaydish hal is also a minig and the same thing on neiris bebeis Question is. The Mechabah holds in tafchav Beis, like the Rambam, that you don't make bracha on Hal, the Rish Chodesh. Why? Because it's a Minig. the Esfardim and Ashkenazim. The Esfardim don't make a bracha on Hal, the Ashkenazim do, because we make a bracha on a Minig too. The Mechabah, Paskins, that boy, Halil, the Beis Yosef says, Esfardim and I not to make a bracha, because it's a Minig. And yet, the Beis Yosef himself says, and the Esfardim do do this, that you make a bracha on the nearest that are in Shul. What's the difference? And the last one is: is the Levush in the Taz. What happens if you you were mad like near Shabbos before near Shal If you could still light near from Chanukah, the Levush says you can, but the Taz says you can't. So the question is to steer in the Taz. The Taz and simon Rashi of Cotton Bays says what happens to it? Sibur they didn't have a shayfar. Yom Bays of Rosh Hashanah is on Friday, and somehow they got a shayfar after the Mispal Tfilas Arvis. But I guess it's before shkiya. it's before uh, Before it's Asa. Could you make the bracha and on the Tzkiah Shofar in such a case where you already davened Arvis of Shabbos? And what does he say? The Taz was Mater Lutkaya. Why? And he says a sforah. Because if lekabel. person can be makabel and ask my Shabbos to be mafkiya from himself a mitza. Interesting svara. So why don't you say the same thing by Hanukkah? Hanukkah, says, I'm Shabbos. Sorry, it's too late and you can't light nearest Hanukkah anymore. Why is Tkiya Shoefer, you're in Bez, you do do it after Kabbal Shabbos, and yet Hanukkah, after Kabal Shabbos, you know, that is the fifth. Since this is a, you know five Shailas, the prize this week, anybody who gets them all, big prize, we haven't decided what it is, but we're looking forward to your answers. To leave a message, call 732-806-8700 and press number 2 or email at info at headlinesbook.com. Let's go to our guests.
8: Joining us is the famous historian, Rabbi Jacob J. Schachter. He teaches history in Rabbi Khanan and the Smicha program. He's a Muslim of both Rav Palm, Rav Rifkin, and Rav Shaw, a PhD in Jewish history from Harvard University. Welcome, Rabbi Schachter.
1: Thank you very much, Rabbi David. It's a genuine pleasure to be here with you.
8: So Rabbi Schachter, we, we're doing this program about you know social media, the Internet. I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about when Judaism in the past bumped into modernity, be it the French Revolution, the Enlightenment that came from it, um, etc., how did we react and how have we feared? And it may go before that too, go back to the Gutenberg Press. If you could try to encapsulate, I don't know, 500 years into this conversation, uh, the impossible, that would be appreciated. Give us some type of an idea. Did we do it right? Did we do it incorrectly? Is there something we could learn from it, etc.?
1: So, uh, you know, the famous Gemara and Masachar Shabbat, about the prospective gear who came to Shammai and said, But he did it. Said, but he did it. And, right, and Beishamai said, can't, can't be. And Beisilel crunched it down. Right. So I always thought that Beishamai is right. How is it Shayach? to teach Kolatera Pula standing on one foot. But Bessilo taught us that Mikan. So I'm going to take uh, a, a, a moment to try to answer your question as best as I can. So there are a few parts to your question. How did we fare when we confronted, I wouldn't say modernity, but when we confronted a culture that was different than ours? Uh, because as you correctly pointed out, Reb David, this is before modern times, uh, how did the Rambam deal with when he confronted uh, Aristotle? Uh, how did Jews in Spain deal when they confronted the culture around them, the Muslim culture? How did the Sadiegon deal? Uh, the notion of the interaction between Judaism and general culture is a very long story. And as one would expect, one would find a whole mahalach that says, you know, we have to we have to be firm and strong and remain uh, committed totally to Ruach Yisrael Saba and totally reject anything that we consider to be alien that doesn't emerge out of the Dal of Torah and Halacha. And on the other hand, there were those, like Rav Sadi and like the Raman and many others in medieval times, and we'll come to the French Revolution in a moment, who said, you know what? There's something here that might be useful for us. And that we could benefit from uh, not has to but should be a stira to our mesorah our mesorah is sacrosanct and paramount obviously that is Allah ala but maybe there's certain Hashkafis, hashkafes that we could benefit from and this has been an ongoing debate from early uh, um, um medieval times it probably even be mea Gemara. you know the chazal say when, when should I learn Chachmas Chatzani but the answer is, you know, go find his man. Yom Vein Uh, but yet there were those who were a little bit more open. So this is a long-standing debate, and it came to the fore much clearer, as you point out, when modernity enters into the picture. Uh, I would say uh, the, the, the Enlightenment in the 18th century, when uh, Judaism began to be a little bit weaker, when the traditional community began to be a little bit schwacher uh, and more open to and more affected by the world around them, that's when really it became an issue. And uh, that issue that started then, and you had Mitzat who felt that it has to be purely altar sakredish. You had uh, others, especially in Germany, like Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer and like Rabbi Shashir here. Hirsch. Um, and uh, and like uh, Rabbi David Svejda, uh, the the Masoreh in Germany was to be more open and more embracing, not just the uh, but even the Chachila, and that gets carried over into the 20th century between the Eilam HaYeshivas and uh, the school that I'm a very much a part of, the Yeshiva that I'm a part of that has as its emblem Torah Umada that does represent and try to make a case for the value of engaging the culture of the world around us. So that's the first part of the, of the question. You know what, What's the landscape? The landscape is, they always told me in Yeshiva, when the Rebbe asked you a question, the answer is, it's a machleikis. You say it's a machleikis, you're, you're, you're safe. So it, it has been a machleikis and it's an ongoing machleikis. You ask, could we have done things better? That's beyond my uh, scope. I don't know what we could have done better. Uh, we've tried to do the best that we can. They're, we have different uh, leaders and, and, and Meirah Drachim who try to help us and guide us and shape us. And they're different shittis. And uh, I have tremendous respect, I have tremendous respect for the, for these sheikers. Uh I myself, I'm a sort of a product of two worlds. Uh, I, I learned in the Yeshiva Philadelphia for for uh, five years, and I went to the Mir in and and uh, I-, I lived in the Mamish Shaku and Eilam and then I went to Taravdas. But at the same time, I went to Brooklyn College and I went to Harvard University, and i i, I see I see both sides, and I respect both sides. You know,
8: let me ask the question like this, Rabbi Shefta When after the Enlightenment, we had an opportunity to from the world have doctors, make, make our own doctors, our own lawyer, lawyers, our own accountants, etc., just like we have in America today, right? But we didn't and millions left because the poverty, the, you know, the parochial rigidity of, of, of just of not being able to be integrated, the price was too great. When Reb Straga came to America, he sent the famous letter to Reb he said, no, you can and it changed the world. But like, you have to wonder what would have happened if he didn't got that answer. I'm just curious, in retrospect, was that a mistake?
1: Treating historical events in retrospect is um, is always very tricky because who knows? Um, I, I would say as follows. My personal opinion is that we would be better off if there would have been a little bit more openness and a little bit more recognition of the value that not every Ben-Toyerah can sit and learn Yamu Velayla, and to create a culture where that seems to be the only legitimate or authentic way of being an Ovid Hashem is problematic, as it is today, too. Uh, a culture that insists that every buffer in the yeshiva makes his life in the Eilim HaYeshiva is problematic because not everybody is for that. So to give people an opportunity within the misgeret of Yerah and Avach and, and being and raising and being a Kiddush HaShem Barabin in whatever profession they have, I think is a very, very, very worthwhile thing to do. I understand those in the 19th century who were afraid. They were afraid that if we opened this up, they were afraid we we're going to lose people. They were afraid L'Hefach. They were afraid that, that this is somehow going to dilute Ruach Yisrael Sabah. And, and uh, we have no right to do that. We have a mesorah; We have to stick to this mesorah. All the foreign winds that are blowing are potentially uh, dangerous. And so we have to batten down the hatches and we have to insist. And in Mir we have to be misbaro, that those who can make it will make it. And hopefully many of them will make it. So it's hard for me to know backwards. I understand both Tzadzim. I resonate personally with a tribe that's a little bit more open. I mean, I want to make it clear that somebody who is not Sheik Hashgobat and who could really learn and shteig and, and become a Godel and become a Pasek, we should support these people. We need these people. They, they're holding up the world. But the issue really comes to the fore for those who are not M'sugol at that level. And then they walk around and they feel less than. They feel, they feel like they're second-class citizens, they're, they feel that, like if all they're taught is that's the only way to really be authentic and then they can't live up to it, maybe we could provide them with an alternative perspective. There's a Meiradik in the at the end of Pasha Shlach, where the Nitziv says that lamaka. one way is Kalmatoira, one way is Avaidah, one way is Gemil of chassadin. And not one is any better than the other. This is the Nitziv, And the Nitziv says, and if you were to come and ask me, so... What should I do? So he said, he quotes the Pesach, I can't tell you what to do. I can't tell you that you should spend your whole day learning. I can't tell you you should spend your whole day doing or, or, or avayda and tefillah and musr and introspection. Habid and we have to respect that. And part of that, I think, also is to be an Ere Lechabal and to be a, to be Hashem I think that is important, and I think we did pay a price, but I'm not critical in hindsight. I wouldn't be critical of those who felt that uh, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I don't know what this is going to lead to. You know, there's reform. I hear reform and and, and there's a slippery slope. I, I, I have to hold on. I have to protect. So I'm not judging. sholem would never judge. So here again, you know, there were those who would say, that's what held on to the Iker Mishra Bar Hashem today, this strong, strong, strong Torah community, both in America and in Eretz Israel, Baruch Hashem, building on that. And there were those who would say, you know, along the lines of your, the formulation of your question, that we lost, we lost so many. If we had, if we had opened the bottle a little bit and let some of the gas escape,
8: then it wouldn't be so, so tense. But Shachta, what percentage for, for, what percentage of Lithuania was religious before the war? Do, do, we, know, do we have any data about that?
1: I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. You'd have to ask someone else who, who's, who, who's more ligging in, in the interwar period. But I would say it's, it's less than we would imagine. We have this uh, idyllic perception that European Jewry was Altar and, and, Sarkoedish. And it's not true. Even uh, great cities like Varsha, had uh, many different kinds of Jews, uh, many secular Jews and then Yiddish Jews and not necessarily I, I don't really know and I don't want to hazard a number, but I would say most of the Jews I believe were not uh, the way we would understand that to be and hope it would have been.
8: Another question, when we, t- we talk about oh, 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, what percentage of Orthodox Jewry was killed? Again, I
1: don't know. I'm not an expert, but I would say a massive percentage. A massive percentage. I, I think that Orthodox Jews—and here I'm not basing this on hard numbers, but just on an intuition—and I stand to be corrected—suffered in greater percentage than those who were uh, of of a different Tashkafka. I, I believe that because they were so much more visibly Jewish, and so they were so much more vulnerable. They couldn't. They couldn't. Uh, Fade into the into the woodwork. It was so belated who they were and what they were, and it's Dafka the, the 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 strength of their Judaism, the forcefulness of their commitment that was so offensive to the to the Amach that that they couldn't be saved. Such Jews with such pride, holding on to their traditions, and I believe, and again I stand to be corrected. That the percentages uh, were 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 more for sure, I would say maybe even significantly greater. I don't know numbers. I don't know numbers.
8: When you look at the debate today about use of the internet, not use of the internet, do you draw any parallels with that? With like our other encounters with modernity, like the French Enlightenment, like opening up schools, etc., or do you not see the connection?
1: No, so I, I think that's very important, and and. Uh, it just so happens that I published an article in the Jewish Law Association Journal a year or two ago called, and I'm quoting the title, The Challenges and Blessings of the Internet, Technology from an Historical Perspective. And I've been grappling with this challenge, the challenge, mitzarecha of the Internet and what the implications are. And I, 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 would, I would say the following. Um, obviously you understand very well anybody listening to this uh, program uh, understands that there's tremendous value uh, in the internet. This program couldn't take place if it wasn't for the internet. All the Torah that goes on in the internet, all of the Sfarn that we have access to, I mean it's how important and how valuable it is. But Mitzhashenia, I think we really need to understand and we really need to grapple with the Challenges. And I would outline a couple, stop you when you feel I've put too much on the table. But where I want to get to is to see the current challenges as you uh, d- draw my attention to, see it in a historical context. It's not like these issues parachuted down into the world with the advent uh, of the of the internet. Mitzarechud, quality control. Any Barbey Rav Dachad could put up whatever they want and they could disseminate and write literally with no quality control. And now I go, and I go to, to wherever I go to, to, to Google, and, it, and, and, and uh, yeah, you know, that's a that's beferish uh, Google. Number two, mistakes. Not just there's no quality control, but there's mamish mistakes. Number three, the capacity of the Internet and of social media in particular, which is the subject of your concern now, the bazier-ness. The destruction, the, the lush and horror, the, 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 the capacity to destroy somebody's reputation. Number four, the batola. I'm not on social media. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't have tweeting. I use I use the, 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 um, or the, um, the inbox, the outbox, email, email. I use email. That's it. The batola, you get on there, you could manage waste away. Number five, and I think this is very Negea to us in, in our traditional community, is the diminution of authority.
3: Everybody's a Balabas.
1: I can go on. I can go to the Tabari Lan and I can go to, to HebrewBooks.org, and I can read the Tshuva, and I can also, also know, and I can also Paskin. Any, who needs a rabbi to Paskin? you find everything on the Internet. And number six, which I think is a real serious issue, especially for our younger people, is the inappropriateness. With the two, with the two three crutches, you end up in mamish and And these are these six challenges that I see in social media today, and I see them quite significantly uh do have precedence. So now that I outline what I see, the problem is I want to come to the to the answer of the question and I see each one of these already we dealt with earlier. And what I want to come to is I want to come to printing. Because I want to argue, and I do in this article at great length, that every single one of these phenomena we already encountered when printing and you mentioned Gutenberg before at the beginning, was printing was first developed. <inaudible> Unbelievable! Printing is such a bracha. We can be marvitz It's amazing. There's a prima gaudem in 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 the, in the hakdama to the prima gaudem who says that if it wasn't for printing, Chas v'Shalom nishtakach Parim Yisrael. Nishman is weniger The the Rabb David Gans, who was a historian who lived into the seventeenth
8: century. David.
1: David. The David. The David writes a chelak the Semach David that there's nothing as valuable. In all of the wisdom and, and, and ideas from the bay, the Kodosh Baruch was buried the Olam as great as printing. <speaking in Hebrew> printing Mitzah Dechad is amazing. Like the Internet, is Mitzah Dechad amazing. But Mitzah Cheymi, every single one. The kindness on every single one of them. Quality control. Now you have money, you print a book, and shine.
8: Who was Miss Nagit to printing?
1: I'll give you an example. So we have a Reb Yosef Shlomo Delmedigo, Reb Yosef Shlomo Delmedigo, a noble of haChochma, right? And I'm quoting, Malaches hadfos kilkel hatola, Malaches haChut had defos kilkel hatola.
8: Why did he say why?
1: Yes, yeah, because anything goes. You could write whatever you want, anything you want to say. He writes, "Rabbi Ame ha'aret Misyahare." Right? You you know well, your audience knows the Pasuk and the Esther. Yeah. It's not misyahadim. It's Mishah You are all like I can also Pasuk. Kilkel kill, The error. The error. There's a Marsha in the Akadametz of the Chadushia Godis that points out that it used to be when you had a manuscript, so you you you, you had a manuscript, you read it, you you thought there was a particular problem with the word, so you put your little Hago on the side. Now, Kuntzigen again Azeser, sees the Haga on the side, likes it, and say and it puts it into the text. So, so now it becomes the authoritative text. So, you, so the printer thinks that the correction is taker correct, puts it in the text, and now it's a kilkul Embarrassing others. There's so many tshuves about embarrassing others. The 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 Rabbi Bachrach writes the favorite. That I'm not going to identify names or places of residence of people who asked me shyless with whom I disagreed, because I don't want to be to them. People are going to say, "You ask the Chavis Yer a question. You're 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 not bigger than the Chavis Yer? And then when the Chavis Yer says, "When I disagree with them," it's embarrassing for them that I that I uh, that I should disagree with them because it's embar- the potentials for embarrassment. Malech is we have that all over the diminution of authority. Diminution of authority, it's, it's, it's what, what printing established? The whole fight over the Shulchanuch, the Marshal, Shreit give out against the Shulchanuch. Shulchanuch wasn't, wasn't the, the, the accepted psach of all of the Jewish people right away. It took a while. And the Marshal of the and said, You're making that Tatanim and Gedolim and the Orem and equal. 'Cause anybody can read your work and shine and that's not right and that's not appropriate. There's a marshal in Saitan that says now and, and, and they can decide and they can because of printing. It's uh, it's a real issue. And then of course the inappropriate uh, material the inappropriate material is Hai Hai the I'll just give you one example the Zoha when the Zohar was published. It was outrage, outrage. You're, I'm not talking about how to show our kind of inappropriate material, but they being the so many people then were absolutely upset. How could you put this material? It's not appropriate for people to look at this. Now, any Yingo is gonna read the Zayah. You have to be 40 years old. You need a Rebbe to hold you by the hand. What's my point? My point is that you're 100% right. I wanna clarify what the issues are with social media. And I highlight the challenges Yes, but I believe it comes with a great set of challenges. But this is not uh, ex-America. These challenges have been with us the exact same point by point, started with printing, and then when the world opened up, there were greater challenges and and greater issues. And uh, and this is what we have to deal with. The genie is out of the bottle. I mean, when nobody... You know that asifa, the the internet asifa is zone design. in the alavay liyiden. I'm sorry, it's a garnished house. The genie is out of the box. The Avayda is not to put it in the bottle and of the internet. That's not going to happen. Even in the most the most Haredi of communities, the avoda is. So let's figure out a way how to shape it that we can only benefit from it because the challenges are real, but they're not
8: new. So they're not new, How did they deal with them then that we can now apply it to now? What could we learn? What could we learn from our past to help shape our future?
1: First of all, we learn from our past that it's a, it's a, it's 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 what we call facts on the ground. That it that it's here and it's happening, and that we need to do the best that we can. We need to focus the best that we can. There is no, uh, you know, bite the bullet. There is no specific. Uh, suggestion to make that we could learn from the past, because in the past also they struggled with it. It's not like they came up with a mahalakha how to save all of the issues that I now discussed with you in the context of printing, so how are we going to fix this? It wasn't fixed. It was never fixed. It was a battle. The more you're aware of it, I think, and I hope that this podcast will sensitize people to the complexity and the solemnity and the seriousness of this issue, and then each each family has to make a husband and figure out what can I do to be able to help in the Dalaramus of my mishpacha, in the Dalaramus of my classroom, in the Dalaramus of my shul. What, what can I do? I can't point to anything then. You're asking me an aizen akasha. I wish I could. Then I would feel a lot better and I would feel I could contribute something really substantial to help ameliorate this issue, but I can't. They didn't have. Uh, some magic bullet and 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 this is where a lot of upgrade needs to be done and it is being done in our community. there are people and there are groups who are really grappling with being the tahir, being the taher, the 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 psyche of 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 our community uh to try to counteract the the negative debilitating uh, uh Tearing down uh, potential uh, impact of what the uh, of what the uh, social media and internet can have.
8: It was really an honor speaking to you. We hope to have you on again. This is fabulous.
1: It's pleasure. It's a pleasure. I wish you great.
8: Joining us from New York City is Dr. Alan Kadish. He's the president of the Turo system. It has 6,000 Jewish students. I think it has like 10 medical schools, and nursing, pharmaceutical, dental, the whole works. Um, certainly many thousands of from a Jewish scientists in your school. Welcome, Dr. Kadish.
2: Thank you so much, David. Good to be
8: So here's my question. I know that Turo does everything Alpi Taira. Your board is all from uh, Dr. Bernie. Uh, Bernie Land is a final of Rachel, Was he the tzaddik? His son Reb is the, uh, I guess, co-president, or is, I'm not sure of the exact title. And you, the you closed on on all Shabbatim and Yom The schools, the uh, they have kosher meals, kosher, etc. How do you teach your 6,000 Jewish students, you know, about age of the universe, evolution, etc. And I'm sure you do it alpiyotira. So a student, you know gets up and he says, you know, we just read in our textbook that the world is 14, the universe is 14 billion light-years across. The world is, I don't know how many billions of years, they say. How do you respond when well, we know that al doesn't jive, certainly, with what we're taught?
9: So
2: if the students are in a school designed for from Jews, we take a, a sensitive approach in our view. And what we do is we, of course, indicate the Torah is absolutely true, but we think it's important that the students, particularly the ones who are going into careers in health sciences or others, understand science. So let's start with the age of the universe. Uh, First, I think it's reasonable to acknowledge that in both the Torah description and in scientific descriptions, there's still things that are not completely clear. So let's start with the Torah description. There is certainly disagreement among Chazal about how to interpret the age of the universe. Sefer Olam, commonly quoted, suggests that the universe is 5,782 years old, transported to the current day. But there are Tanayim, certainly uh, Rishonim, who suggest that the universe may be somewhere between 40,000 and 15 billion years old. And that's based on their understanding of the fact that the description in Bracius, while of course may not Give all the details that are necessary to make calculations like the age of the universe. And, for example, Rashi says that Hashem creates worlds and destroys them, suggesting that there have been worlds before the current counting. Many Mefarshim talk about the fact that the Shashish and the six days of creation, don't necessarily represent 24 hour periods. They may represent times that are much, much longer, but that are referred to as a Yom for ease of presentation and simplicity in patience. And the bottom line is we can't understand Hashem's ways, how Hashem could have created the universe, and we don't have a full understanding of it. So I don't think that there's necessarily an incompatibility between the Torah description of the age of the universe and the current scientific analysis, which, by the way, continues to evolve and change in, in some ways that suggests that the universe is about 14 billion years old. And that's what we'll teach students. The, the Torah says this literally. There's a machlokus about how to, it, how to interpret it. And this is what science suggests the age of the universe is.
8: So let me just go back over what you're saying. It's a gracious rabbit. It's in many places, but I'll quote one place. Amr Rebbe Simain doesn't say Yehi let there be an evening vaihe which sense be an extension we can show man in there was a long stretch of time long I'm adding and there was a stretch of time before this he was he, he, he created this earth many many times and he said this is the one i want right so to start as you're saying all these multiple earths etc or Many, it doesn't say the earth was destroyed, but rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt. We don't know, to say to Hazman, what it is. Additionally, we don't know any di- the time of the Sheshis Yimeh which were timeless. There was no sun, there was no moon. So it was basically before time was created. So it could have been 14 billion years, it could be 140 billion years. There's no way for us to know. Is that correct?
2: That is exactly right. And, and that's what we teach our students.
8: And I want to add on to what you're saying, Dr. Kadesh, is that we haven't, the Chazal have not written much about this. And it's interesting, like, you know, it's just a, it's a blank slate. And I would say it's not by accident. Um, at the end of my sub again, I'm quoting you, uh, the Medrash Rabbah Paraktes Aleph. It's a yara leikim So pasach, kvod The kavod of God is to be silent, not to, not to divulge. kavod Malachim hakar davar, is to express up to Shabbos, and including Shabbos is koydeleikem haster davar. Chazal said we just don't—it's not a part of the Torah that we discuss. Alpi Hester, its hasder davar. It's Kabbalistic. It's beyond our understanding. So, yes, we have Chazal, Ba'neil, and Machriva, many ilums like that. The Khazals that talk about the Big Bang—it's not discussed. It's not by accident. It was intentional. But there's certainly nothing here about Shemesh Shemayberish that tells us that it's six days. It could have easily been six billion or sixty billion. I'm encapsulating what you said correctly. Is that so?
2: Absolutely correct.
8: Okay, so let's continue. How do you explain um, the dinosaur?
2: So there are several possible explanations for the existence of dinosaur fossils. One is the one we just said, perhaps one of the previous worlds that... Hashem created and destroyed, contained dinosaurs, and we're finding the remnants of those dinosaurs.
8: In other words, when they look for fossils, they go down, 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 down. They say, this is to this age, and this is to this age. Just that Those were the worlds that were destroyed, and with them, all the creatures in those worlds.
2: That's certainly one possible explanation. A second possible explanation is that dinosaurs were subsumed within Sheshit and Vibratius. And as you pointed out, the level of the tail that we have is intentionally hidden or perhaps impossible for understa- us to understand in the fact that we can't understand Maasei Hashem completely. And, and, th- and that's what we- how dinosaur fossils were created. And a final explanation, which is perhaps less satisfying, with, but which some have provided, is that Hashem created the world with evidence of things that were much older. And He did it not to try to fool us, but intentionally because Hashem gives us Bechir HaFshis. If the world were created in a way... Which absolutely proved the existence of Hashem, we'd be back into the existence of Gan Eden before there was Yitzhar Tov and Ra. because there'd be no nothing to argue about. There'd be no room for amuna, because the existence of Hashem and Hashem creating the world would be evident scientifically. And that's not the way Hashem created the world. Hashem created the world for human beings, or at least post Gan Eden, created a world. And, and you said that
8: You said you don't like this one. Why not? I,
2: I think that. Uh, it's an easy explanation. I shouldn't say I don't like it. It's an easy explanation. And, you know, to say we don't understand why Hashem would do this, I, I've created one explanation. But there are many ways of Hashem we don't understand. So it's a reasonable explanation as well.
8: Okay, now science today, almost universally, the, the vast majority believe in the Big Bang Theory. How does that stem with uh, the way we're taught Baratius?
2: So I think the Big Bang Theory could be interpreted as evidence of Hashem creating the universe and let me explain why. The Big Bang Theory talks about the creation of the universe from some previous existence which is undefined and unknown and it certainly is compatible with the idea that the universe was created ex nihilo which means from nothing because nothing about the evidence that we have today tells us really anything except wildly theoretical about what existed before the creation of the universe and it is totally compatible as i believe the ramban says and others suggest that hashem created the universe through an explosion and hashem created the big bang and the reason we can't understand what was present before the big bang is that there was nothing present except hashem and he created the universe and the mechanism he used to create the universe was the big bang and so I, I see no incompatibility between Bracius and the Big Bang theory at all.
8: And let me let me just the the Ramban is in Brachius Aleph, Aleph, Well, that's easy. Uh, and when he wrote it, interestingly, he wrote it in the face that common science believed really literally till around seventy or eighty years ago, until the, the Bell Labs discovery, believed in a static universe. That means they believed the, the, the universe was eternal and had no creation, which means it had no creator. This was common science and if you said there was a creation, they would have laughed at you before seventy years ago until, uh, what were the names of the two scientists in Bell Lab? I forgot their names. Here in New Jersey actually, right? Yeah, it, was,
2: it was done in New Jersey. I don't remember the names either. It
8: but was in it Bell Lab. Yeah, go ahead. Explain the it.
2: The essential finding was that the universe is expanding that you can measure distant stars and different ob- distant objects, and you see that the in- universe is expanding. And by extrapolating back from that expansion, you can calculate a Big Bang.
8: And they heard the echoes. They were able to hear the echoes of the Big Bang. I believe they won the Nobel Prize for it. That's correct. For, so, but until then, they had believed, all of science had believed, even though Einstein was the one who basically came up with the idea of the Big Bang in relativity, that it was an expanding, they called it the static universe. So. Right. A thousand years before this, or 900 years, the Ramban in Bereshis Aleph Aleph, he says, he says, min Fs ha'gomer." He, he was mighty, he created from the, from absolute nothingness a tiny little very fine dot, ain't by mamish, but it's a koyach mamsi. It had in it the ability, a tremendous density, the ability to be mamsi this is the first matter. Hayuli. He says, the Ramban says it all started with the tiniest speck of matter. He said this 800 years before Einstein, before the two scientists in the Bell Labs and which Religion was really laughed at at the idea of a creator, and I mean I don't know where the Ramban got it from, but the Gemara in Chagiga Yud Beizamad Aleph says a very similar thing. From Amr Reb Yehuda, Rabbani created it from some from infinitesimal speck, etc. There are many of, a number of other Gemaras that say this. So the Big Bang is really a Jewish theory that starts with the Gemara and the Ramban. Is that fair to say?
2: It's certainly fair to say it. And as you say, they don't quote sources. Uh, the modern scientific theory uh, understands both from the fact that the universe expands. As well as you talked about microwave background radiation, that those things have helped define evidence for the Big Bang theory. Which, as you say, the Ramban doesn't really quote his source for it.
8: What other challenges do you have from contemporary science when you're teaching, um, um, you know, from orthodox kids?
2: Well, evolution, of course, has uh, been a major challenge uh, for all religions in particular from Judaism, since discovery in the 19th century. And what that relates to is not just the age of the universe, but how human beings were created. And when we talk about evolution, which we do teach, I want to distinguish two things. One is the concept that Hashem created plants, animals, and human beings with the ability to evolve in response to changing conditions. There are halachic sources for that. Perhaps referred to as nishtanahateva, and there is absolute ironclad scientific evidence that that happens. So that, but that piece of evolution, of course, does not necessarily challenge the Torah's view of creation because it simply says that human beings and other creatures can evolve a little bit in response to changing circumstances. The bigger challenge, of course, is how did man arise? The classic theory of evolution suggests that there was a progression, in fact, a progression not dissimilar from what's described in Shesha Shem that first um, there were uh, single-cell organisms, then there were fish, then there were mammals, and then human beings, and that that occurred through the process of evolution. One easy way to reconcile uh, our belief that Hashem created human beings with the theory of evolution is to suggest that Hashem used the evolutionary process to create human beings. Once we establish the fact that t'shesh yishe may have happened over a very long period of time, one could suggest, perhaps, as some have, that evolution is the mechanism by which Hashem used to create human beings, and that's one possibility. A second possibility, of course, which we discussed before, is that Hashem embedded in the creation of human beings, just as he embedded in the creation of the world scientific evidence for another process, such as evolution, even though, in fact, he created the world looking as if evolution had taken place. The final piece is I talked about the fact that some aspects of evolution have absolutely incontroversial evidence. I think while it is rare to find mainstream scientists who don't believe in evolution as the origin of human beings, it's also fair to say that how evolution happened, how the big jumps in the evolutionary pathway happened hasn't really been fully established. And there's a fascinating article that was published two years ago that asked the following question, how likely is it that there's life anywhere else in the universe? And what the article did was said, how likely is it that the huge evolutionary steps required for the development of human beings could happen anywhere else? And their answer was, those steps are extraordinarily unlikely. So one possible explanation is that the world was created through a lot of really good luck. But the other possible explanation is that the process of evolution wouldn't have happened without Hashem's guiding it, without Hashem's creating the world and human beings through the physical process which he created of evolution about of evolution. I can't tell you which of these is true. I'm not smart enough to know that. But I think it's possible to teach evolution in a way that does not contradict Sefer and doesn't contradict our sensibility about the uniqueness and specialness of man that Hashem infused in neshama At some point in the process.
8: Yeah, I want to mention something. You know, uh, because I get asked this a lot. You know, don't you believe in science? Like, you know, people say because I go to a lot of obviously I travel, I'm in this all around. I wear a yarmulke. Don't you? You're religious. Don't you believe in science? And I just look at them and I say, like, who who created science? Like, science is a mechanism. It's like mechanics. You know, who created the mechanic who's fixing your car? Yes, I believe in cars. I believe in mechanics. I believe somebody created the mechanic, and somebody created the tools, and somebody created, you know, the screws and the nuts. Who created science? So I, I don't even grasp the contradiction when people ask me the question.
2: So I think uh, people don't understand uh... Observing Judaism very well, and I but I think also perhaps we need to do a little better job of explaining it. But the bottom line is, of course, I agree with you. And if you remember the way we referred to evolution, it said Hashem created this process. Hashem uses the process, and uh, He created a world which allows the world to proceed at a time of Hester Panem, when we don't feel His existence on a day-to-day basis, and that's the nace so to speak, of Bria and of creation, of the world and human beings.
8: So Dr. Kevsh, in conclusion, you you don't believe that religious Jews have to be intimidated, have to be scared of science, or for that matter, that there's much in science that contradicts the Torah the way Chazal gave it over to us.
2: Absolutely. I think there are complexities and there are things that uh, perhaps have to be left as questions and I would
8: um, add to that the questions which fall into exactly what you say kim we're not it's just not our it's not our mission it's not our messiah it's not our urge to really be haiku into my separation period if they wrote a masecht on it just like the Ramban was maram is the big bang there would be a whole masecht on what the offer means and how we use the offer and we are the other elements so it would be msextas, but it's we have a kabbalah. of haster and
2: I'm not sure that we would be able to understand it even if we tried at this point
8: Just the science isn't able to. That's right. I mean, the greatest scientist of our lives, what was his name? Uh, Black Hole, the fellow from England, Dawkins. He said very uh, clearly...
2: Hawking, Stephen Hawking.
8: Hawking, I mean, he said very clearly, he says, I have no idea where the Big Bang came from.
2: And I don't think we'll ever know because from a scientific standpoint, uh, and I think uh, as from Jews, we believe that Hashem created the Big Bang and created the universe. Is it fair to say, I've heard somebody say this, he
8: says, you have to have as much faith to believe in science as you have to have to believe in a creator, there are so many questions on, like for example, you said the odds of, of, uh, of, of, of any creature being created just through evolution is, I think it's like 10 to the 73rd power, some absurdly, incredibly, unimaginably tiny number. So do you have to have as much faith to believe in that or even more faith than to believe in the concept of a creator?
2: So I think uh, it depends how you use the word faith. If you can say there are things that a science can't define and things that are unknown, yes. I think uh, it's, it's not so much faith as it is a recognition of the advances, but also the limitations of science.
8: Dr. Kadish, thank you very much. As always, it's a pleasure having you with us. We have the honor of joining us from Yerushalayim is Rabbi Beryl Wein, he's the Rav of the base Knesset HaNasi in Yerushalayim, he's a director of the Destiny Foundation, he's the author of so many books on Jewish history, we've all listened to him, we've read his books. Welcome Rabbi Wein.
3: Thank you, pleasure.
8: Rabbi Wein, how successful historically have the Orthodox been at embracing modernity?
3: That's a difficult question to answer the way, the way you phrased it, but uh, we would, I would say uh, they have not, we have not been uh, overly successful because we have not come up with a formula uh, that is acceptable across the board as to uh, how to deal with modernity or even how to define modernity. Is modernity uh, the iPhone? Or is it uh, studying Goethe and Schiller? What is modernity? And because uh, we haven't defined it, so we haven't really... Uh, I don't think we've been very successful. And it was, what, the only thing we're successful at is survival because of the fact that we have the Torah, and the Torah is truth, and it's eternal, and therefore the Torah within us survives everything. But as a organized movement dealing with modernity Uh, there have been many many different streams and many different ideas and uh, none of them have been overly successful in my opinion
8: and what leads you to the conclusion that we haven't been successful could you point to particular numbers like just as an example
3: why is eighty percent of the Jewish people non-observant
8: and did this happen post-modernity post our encounter with modernity? this
3: happened over the last two hundred years uh, really, really, over the last
8: hundred and fifty years so two hundred years ago, what percentage of cholesterol was from
3: seventy
8: five eighty so we've gone from eighty percent to twenty percent over a two hundred year period right. one hundred fifty year period and give us some some examples of how we how our encounter with modernity caused this erosion amongst us
3: well uh, in the in modernity originally had to do with scholarship, it had to do with ideas, especially ideas of the Enlightenment of Ascala, and it also had to do with a new way of thinking, science, uh, the understanding of the universe, the discarding of myths, and uh, that was the original starting point. So uh, the question is, were you willing to deal with those new ideas? Uh, they, for instance, uh, the Haskalah, the Enlightenment in Jewish life, the original Maskilim all were observant Jews. Moses Mendelssohn never missed a Minchen. But because of the fact that he uh, embraced certain Enlightenment ideas and attempted to apply them to Jewish life, so then a whole controversy broke out and uh, so to speak, uh, he was excluded from the Jewish world. The fact that all of his descendants uh, converted to Christianity didn't help him. But originally, it was a battle of ideas. The Haskalah and Litte was ideas, and uh, you know, ideas are very hard to fight if you don't if you don't debate them and think them through and you don't see exactly what the point is. So uh, if you say uh, any new idea, any different idea automatically is an to us, eventually you're going to run into problems when the ideas prove themselves to be true.
8: Can you give an example of that?
3: Yeah, Galileo. Uh, The church said no. Oh, you know the world is not round, and uh, you know there's no such thing. Okay, so they uh, they excommunicated him and everything, but it turned out that he was right. When he was right, the church was undercut and remains undercut until today. They never recovered from that blow. So uh, if you say uh, if you say that uh, uh, science is automatically uh, uh, excluded from Jewish life, uh, you're going to run into problems. And we have run into those problems. And there's another problem. Uh, it's not, I don't want to lay it all on that. Uh, the, part of the problem today is uh, is simply society itself. Affluence. I mean, Cazal said that Jewish people do better as a whole by having less than by having more. We don't know how to handle more. And when the drive becomes for more, so then uh, that's really what happened to American Jewry.
8: So Rabbi, Rabbi Boyne, let me, I apologize, You're because you're, you're laying on a lot of facts. I want to just clarify one by one. You said that if what happened to Galileo was an example of when we embrace um, a false premise Right. And, it, and it undermines us going forward. Can you right. think, going back historically, you're a historian, as a particular example of where we embraced or refused to embrace something new, that looking back, you know, with hindsight, maybe we should have done differently?
3: Well, I mean, I don't know how controversial you want me to get.
8: You can, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi wine this program is not about controversy, it's about truth.
3: I, I don't want to mention the name of the Godolin. Okay. But uh, I heard it from the, uh, they said that uh, the state of Israel could never come into being. And they said if it came into being, it wouldn't last 15 years. Well, if you said that, if people believe that, the state of Israel today is almost 75 years old. So then that, that undercuts you a little, right?
8: And that was also a new idea at the time, obviously.
3: Absolutely. The Jewish people should have a state without the Mashiach coming. And the state should be run by socialists without the Corson. So naturally, it can't be. So there's always a danger in
8: saying it can't be. Now, can you think of Haskalah, where... I know there was, uh, you know, Chacham Bernays had a different attitude that we should take Well, court. yes, but the
3: Germans had a different attitude completely. Chacham Bernays and Hirsch and Bomberger and uh, Hildesheimer. So uh, their idea was, uh, so to speak, to embrace modernity and to combine it with strict observance. On a local level, they were successful, but uh, Eastern European Jews uh, couldn't uh, adapt to it. They said, well, that's good for the Germans, but it, it doesn't fly in Poland or Lithuania or Belarus.
8: And ironically, that's what we have in America today, isn't it?
3: So in America today, you have modern orthodox, quote, unquote, whatever that is who deals with modernity, right? You have Yeshiva University, you have Turo, and then you have the clandestine the uh, uh, Torah and probably in the hundreds, if not the thousands that do go to school and do get a degree and do go in the workplace. And then you have uh, groups of Jews that reject it completely. They don't teach English, they speak only Yiddish, they don't want to talk, you know, it doesn't exist.
8: Re- Rabbi Warren, would you say for the most part because I am not YU. I didn't go to YU. I went to Neither the US, and I went. I did get a, an English education through 12th grade, and I think that probably goes to the the majority, even though maybe changing. But at least to my generation, would you yeah, say? in that, our generation,
3: it existed.
8: So would you say, for the most part, we've adopted what was the vision originally of Chacham Bernays, which was there's nothing about modernity that is astirah that to minister, is incompatible
3: with that is incompatible.
8: Have Jewish doctors and Jewish lawyers and right, Jewish surgeons right, 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 and right. Jewish Wall Streeters and Jewish Jewish coils and Jewish That's common, right. common. That's right. and 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 what, would you say, looking back, if in Europe, and this is obviously the benefit of 2020 hindsight, if Polish Jewry, Lithuanian jewelry had embraced what we see in America today, we would have many more from a Jew today than we. Than well, we I do. don't know
3: because they, they, you can't discuss, in my opinion, Eastern European Jewry because the Holocaust ended it. So whatever is left over, you know, you, you, that, that, I don't think
8: that's fine. Okay, so so but let's go to the 80-20 that you were discussing. You're saying today it's 80-20, 80% irreligious, secular. Let's, let's would that be to, different if we had embraced it the other way? That's my question.
3: I think so. I, I don't know if it, would, if it would go back to 80-20, but, I, but there would be more than 20 today, that's for sure.
8: And how would you like? And and how would you like if you had to prove that point? How or you know, embrace, if you had to underline that point, how would you say it? I mean, would it be the fact that there's such a little fallout in the, uh, among the Orthodox today in America? That's
3: one of the proofs. But I think the best proof is soil oil. since oil is sixty uh, percent uh, traditional, maybe seventy percent traditional.
9: And how because
3: because Absurd and Frumkeit is hard to measure, but it's. Uh, and, uh, in Ernst uh, the state of Israel, you know, so, uh, all the high tech companies have minyanin for they all have a daft, they all have this, they all have that. That's Israel is a Jewish life, and, uh, it's a modern country and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it's divided here too. There's a, an element in the Orthodox world that says it's all safe, but basically that's not what the Orthodox world in Israel is.
8: Rabbi Wine, it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you.
3: Well, thank you very much and uh, you should be matzliach and everything.
8: Amen. Thank you very much, for that. Cool too. Cool too. Joining us from New Jersey, is Reb David Bashefkin. He's the director of Chinuch for NCSY. He's the Mechaber of B'Roy Rachim Tizker, a beautiful sefer that I, every Elo I, I look at again. He's a Talmud of Neri Yisrael. Welcome, Reb David. What a pleasure to be here, Reb David. Thank you so much for having me. So as 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 the head of Chinuch for the OU, you deal with a lot of "Quote unquote," you know, people who are a little bit more in the secular world—not necessarily, you know, not necessarily the, the you know the Haredi world, not going to high school. Sure. Do you feel that the graduates of these school, of these schools are better prepared? Uh, to live in the outside world because of the fact that they got a a, a secular, a healthy secular education? Or do you think they're losing out from not having the insular, you know, sort of the insular more of a cocoon? In other words, what what am I saying? I I, I personally have nephews and nieces that their parents are very mocked. They never had internet. They never saw anything. So on one hand, they really are very holy. I mean, they they know nothing. They they never heard of, of Donald Duck for all practical purposes. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when they go out into the world, you know, into modernity, while well, they're still younger, I don't know how they challenge it. I don't know how they, you know, how they'll deal with it. So, do we? If you had a choice, insulate or inoculate in Chinuch. How would you weigh those two stuff I I, 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 don't
4: lo- I don't love that binary. I don't think it really operates on a binary. The, the term that I like to use is exposure therapy. When somebody is afraid of something, um, very often the, what helps inoculate the, your terminology is a little bit of exposure to whether it's the virus or the germs or whatever it is it helps build up a resilience so when they do inevitably confront something from the outside world and I say inevitably because I think for 99.9 percent of people that confrontation is inevitable um it's healthy to build up some exposure therapy some inoculation so when you go out it doesn't knock you out you know the example that a lot of people bring is, you know, in Israel, they basically got rid of the peanut allergy because of the, how common it is for young children to have a little bit of bamba. So I'm not saying that you need to expose your kids to uh, things that are really negative or cynical or, or, or filthy or us or God forbid. But I think a yeah, healthy exposure therapy, what I find in building a healthy culture of Yiddishkeit in your home, but knowing what's going on in the rest of the world, but knowing, knowing that there are Jews of different flavors and Jews of different types and Yiddishkeit of different types, ultimately builds the healthiest resilience that you'll have a long-term identity that will be able to confront whatever challenges you have in the rest of your life.
8: Okay. Another question. As a director of education, Science, How, what, what do you teach your boys, I mean, what do you teach them about age of the universe, about evolution, we, you know, things that are in, you're going to be in your average secular high school textbook, which a lot of parents are really very scared, and they've made their own textbooks. Where do you stand on that?
5: I, I have a, a
4: little bit of an interesting view on this. I don't want to go deep, 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 but I'll tell you this much. The number one thing when kids are very young is the knowledge that there is a beginning, and God created a beginning. If you look at physics, I think what distinguishes the religious perspective from modern physicists, like a Sean Carroll, who writes a great deal about this, is essentially the religious world posits that we have a beginning. A beginning. There was a beginning. And we don't have an end. There's chaye olamin. As opposed to in the atheistic world, it is almost reversed. There is no beginning. The world was always here. And chalila, when you die, the view is there's an end. It goes black. The screen is over. And what I try to expose people to and inspire people with, rather than setting up these contradictions, I try to build in the idea that there was a beginning, there was a purpose to this beginning, and we are privy to a relationship that has the ability to have chaye olamim. I don't set up the contradictions. I teach, um, again, whenever this comes up, I believe in science. I believe in the basic ways that most scientists have it, and I think it's okay that this has evolved over time our very relationship with this. The main idea that I try to transmit, particularly to young children, is the idea that there was a beginning and that beginning has a purpose. That never bothered me as like this linchpin that undermines the scientific theory. When I read the Torah, I like to think that it's trying to give me religious principles of how to live my life and the religious values with which to live my life. I don't think that the Torah was communicating the language of science at any point. So it usually doesn't bother me when people draw their 101 contradictions and seeming contradictions. I prefer there are a lot of descriptions in the way that the universe seems to be described in Baruches that does not cohere with modern science. That that's what I will say. And to me, I do not approach the text of the Torah as transmitting scientific ideas. I think that they are always transmitting religious and divine ideas.
8: Okay, you're saying that it's not a science book. It's a it's a moral. It's a book about you know morality, kedusha concepts, etc.
4: Correct. Et Correct, and therefore I also teach. Uh, I also teach and understand science. I grew up in the home of a hematologist oncologist who was very committed, but he believed in science and chemistry, and and you know I don't know how much evolution played a role in his life, but I don't think that he dismissed it either. But he was very committed to the fact that there was some there was a sanctity to the human condition, and that I think is the underlying principle that the Torah is coming to tell us that there is a sanctity to being a human being, and that sanctity ultimately derives from God.
8: Do you think that the modern world is handling like you know the fusion of the of the orthodox community into America? It's something that really hasn't happened in maybe since the golden era in Spain, which we really don't have a record of. Who, who do you think is handling it better, like the 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 modern orthodox world, the, the sort of a haredi world, if you had to, you know, look at them sort of side by side? Not, not, so much, he, not so much as a rating system when play, I'm playing a game, but like what can we learn from it?
4: I think each community actually shines with different ages. I think the Hasidic community shines with young children. Shines. It's so beautiful what they invest into very young children, particularly even not just what they invest in children, but what they invest in the people who teach children. A first grade Rebbe, a second grade Rebbe in the Hasidic community is a superstar. It's a very important and privileged and dignified position. You don't find that in other communities. I think the yeshiva community does a very nice job in high school where they really instill a sense of excitement for Torah learning and for Yerushalayim, and they're able to build these experiential programs and build this connection that gets these teenagers that otherwise opt out they get they get them fired up. I think where the modern Orthodox community excels is in adulthood in the transition not of growing up of the but of being a grown up and I think it's a community that's really based on a certain level of personal choice and an acknowledgement of how much information we have access to. So if somebody were ask me which community is doing best, I would say it depends what age i, say, I my approach is raise your young children Hasidish, your high school kids yeshivish, and then when they're adult, we're all modern Orthodox.
8: It's a very original a very original approach.
9: <laughs>
8: you know, you know, I, I once said over a tithe I said that, you know, when we leave Mitzrayim, the Isr is Khamit. And Khamet is Asa Bamashu, whatever that means, one in a thousand, one in a million, whatever it is, right? Bamashu. Um and uh because it is problematic. I mean, if a mashahu means, like, you sure. know, uh, the tiniest speck possible, so then we wouldn't be allowed to drink water mm-hmm. on Pesach, because everything comes from a reservoir. Some place a piece of chametz mm-hmm. fell into there, right? So, but chametz is a mashahu and total separation. And yet, sukis at the end of the journey, when we, you know, the Gimel Regalim, our journey, the end is the time of harvest, then it's sukis, which is kol you ru yim lesheh, echas. So which way is it? Is it do we separate totally? Is it is it absolute purity and isolation? Is it Kol Yisrael Ruyim Leishiv Asuk Echus Asukas Good Asse Good Aches Daifin Akuma Love at Every Possible Right. And I think that the answer is it depends where you are in the journey. When we leave Mitzrayim, what is it? We're like we're newborns, right? In, in Ruchni, exactly. if that Exactly. And at that point, you can't tell a child. You can't start telling a child, you know, there's other ways and you have to be tolerant. You, tell it, you sit down by the child, they're tolerant. They're not going to miss the entire, they'll lose everything. And yet, if you tell a, a, a full adult that there's only your way and you can't see any other opinion, it's also a, a disaster. So it really depends where you are in the journey. And that's what you're that's saying.
4: Exactly, that's exactly the idea that I'm saying. And the idea of the whole notion of Pesach is about the child, our national childhood. And I think Chabas is an example of like baby food, like I mentioned with Bamba. When you introduce children to foods, you have to start very slow. Don't give a, an infant a fancy cake with a thousand different ingredients. You first try carrot, and then you try, I don't know... Uh, cucumbers, and then you build up into more complex foods. And I think Pesach, the reason why we kind of eliminate these types of breads, the leave in bread, is this same idea. And I think the Hasidic community does this very well with very, very young children, exactly like I was saying. And then I think ultimately what I said is we're ultimately we're all modern Orthodox Jews when we're older. Not as an ideology, but we all have to confront the issues now. Once you're, once you're an adult and you're a grown-up, everybody needs to contend with the same issues. Whether you live in Teaneck or in Lakewood or New Square or Stotmer, everyone is contending with these issues. And figuring out how to do that I think is the ultimate you know, struggle and what everybody in every Jewish community is contending with right
8: now. Okay, so I'm going to give you six questions. Give me like a brief responds to an internet kosher phones or iphones
4: depends on the age kosher okay. phone younger smartphones when when you're older
8: ultimately metaverse are we prepared for it
4: no it's very it's very dangerous it can have a terrible effect on our mental health and sense of isolation i'm very concerned about what ai is doing to the way that we function and our very sense of self even
8: okay science should the big bang scare us Not
4: at all. I don't think so at all. I think there's no premise where we can feel more confident than the notion that there is a beginning and a purpose to the world and the human condition. And if you read science carefully, they're not offering – they're offering a theory that simply undermines the very experience of being a human being. It's not compelling.
8: Kosher entertainment, bad influence or another way to engage with our children?
4: great influence, building great Jewish culture saved Orthodoxy in America and we owe a lot of people, whether starting from the Uncle Myish of the world or all the Jewish music of the world, this is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And it's an indictment on the modern Orthodox community that they were never able to produce great children's entertainment.
8: Interesting. Are you're saying it's culture. It's interesting, you know, we just read Yafasichasan shall av the Yavis miterasin shall banim. Right, by Eliezer, and, and the Oymik the, the of the pshat is Yafaz Tzichas, and the story of the Ava is create the culture of Klal Yisrael. And culture will beat, you know, Limud, you know, 90% of the time, like the famous story with Rav Shach. Okay. Exactly. Modern clothing and shaitals. Has Sneas gotten too lax.
4: No. Sneas has gotten too rigid, and it became... Instead of a sense and a rhythm, it became a measuring stick and a ruler. SNEAS should reflect uh, social evolution the same way that my bubbies and my grandmother who grew up in very from home. Uh, something ossified in our relationship to SNEAS that, to me, seems very unhealthy and is not building a rhythm and an actual cadence and spirit of what SNEAS is trying to preserve.
8: Okay. Education. Are we teaching our children enough... Uh... Uh, you know, secular education or just Gemara? I I'll think let, that's a layup that, for you. I guess. <laughs> I think I. I think
4: we need. I think we need aspects of both, and I. I believe in a strong secular education. I think it's very, very healthy, and it doesn't have to come at the expense of Gemara. It didn't for generations uh, of uh, of Jewish homes and Jewish lives and Jewish communities, and I think there's a way to balance it both, and, and communities and individuals who set up this binary, don't believe them, and figure out a way to make both work, because it does.
8: Do you think that American Yiddishkeit is handling modernity well?
4: Yes. I think American Yiddishkeit is handling modernity extraordinarily well. What I'm worried about is that they're not handling materialism well. I think that we've become too enamored with wealth, and we're associating wealth with what it means to be an authentic Jew, and that really scares me.
8: Rev. David, thank you very much. That was a really fabulous uh, interview.
4: My absolute pleasure, really also. always. We'll be the Kesher. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you.
8: Bye-bye. Joining us from New York is Dr. Elisheva Kalbach. She's the Director of Jewish Studies at Columbia University. Welcome um, back to Kalbach.
5: Thank you so much, Rev. David. Thank you for having me. So your,
8: your expertise is Jewish history. We're dealing now with a really, uh, modernity is 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 touching Judaism again, orthodox Judaism in a way, in a very profound way. The internet, social media. I mean, our forget about our appearance. We wouldn't recognise the world. 20 years ago, the way it looks today, where you can sit by a chassana, by, by a chuppah, pull out something out of your pocket, be in touch with the entire world, see any piece of news you want to see, any, it's just astonishing, right? Could you tell us historically, when the Jews encountered modernity, when orthodoxy encountered modernity, did it have a good ending or not? And what could we learn from that towards our present situation?
5: Well, thank you for an excellent question, which is not so easy to answer. Um, Looking back on hundreds of years of Jewish history, I would have to say that the Jewish world has been very selective about what aspects of modern technology it will embrace and to what ends it will use that technology. And I'd like to give one possible parallel Think about the introduction of print technology. For for thousands of years, people have been first um, incising words on. Stone and then on clay tablets and then on wax tablets and then a tremendous revolution they discovered how to treat animal hides in a way that you were able to use them and write on them parchment Um, there's been revolutions in the technology of conveying information and jews have used them uh, with great discernment over the millennia then In the mid-15th century came this man, Johannes Gutenberg, um, who invents the printing press, and that revolutionizes everything. Uh, Manuscripts that had existed in several carefully selected copies uh, that were handed down from from Master to Talmud uh, could now be printed in thousands of copies. Information that was not public knowledge could now be disseminated in, in tremendous quantities. There was a great deal of fear that the wrong material could get into the wrong hands. Uh, people would paskin shilas for themselves if you printed uh, halachic code. Uh, women could get uh, ideas in their heads if they were able to read. Um, simple people might think themselves as learned as rabbis. Um, and yet, in the end uh Jews adapted and adopted print technology uh with tremendous success for Jewish culture
8: was there so, was there do you see historically at the time a debate about it or are you just assuming there yes, was a debate
5: well, no 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 there was there is definitely debate with some people immediately assuming uh that this magical um eight um this ten a thousand pens uh uh, one printer writes. Uh, I, I, I wrote this book with a thousand pens at the same time. That's how we thought of it, the printing press. Um, and th- there were definitely all kinds of machlokos as to what could be printed and what should be printed. Uh, think about the printing of the Zohar in the 16th century to tremendous controversy. Um, th- there was a lot of controversy over a lot of different aspects of of printing in Jewish culture. At the same time, this was an age in which there was an inquisition, and there was a Catholic church that wanted to eradicate the Talmud from, from all of the world because they believed that that was what was preventing Jews from converting to Christianity. The idea that they could burn cartloads of Talmud in the 13th century, which they did in Paris, um, destroy an entire patrimony, 20 wagon loads of manuscripts. It's, it's One shudders to think of the loss. Um, by the time you get to the age of print, they could burn as many copies as they wanted, but somewhere else in the world, somebody could print thousands of copies in a short time. So there was a revolution in technology. Yes, it was greeted with some hesitations. At the same time, we always have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose to which we will put this technology. So we talk about the internet. It's a vast thing. You can't you can't cut off people from the world and expect that to work for the vast majority of them, especially people who are themselves a minority in the world and have to get along and have to make a living and have to be able to navigate through this very complicated world. But we have to be smart enough to adapt and adopt the technology that works for our purposes
8: and don't allow it to
5: master us.
8: What would you say, Dr. Kalbach, to like a Rebbe and Erich Yisrael who said um, 80% of the boys that he encounters have encountered pornography and he just says the damage is is just monumental. Like, How do we deal with that as a, as a community?
5: It's a very big problem and I don't have expertise in the answer, but I don't know if the correct answer is don't allow children to have phones because they're going to encounter them. And to me, again, what makes sense is to, to prepare children that there there is material that degrades human dignity, and that's not something we want. And when you see it, turn away from it. Teach them how not to pursue it rather than take away the means, which is only a very temporary band aid, that, that would be my. Speak to the children openly about what it is they're seeing and why it's disturbing and why, it, why it's something that pulls them and how to resist it.
8: Dr. Kalba, what about social media? What do you think um, Jewish attitude should be towards, towards social media as a historian?
5: Um, so, something, something along similar lines. Again, I personally. Uh, on most so-called social media, Uh, but I remember when email came out, there was some discussion about about the uses of email. Um, you know, we're, I'm speaking on a telephone now. We're on a radio. Um, all of these are, in certain ways, com- certainly communication media um, and, to some extent, social media. Eventually, we learn how to harness it and how to use it in ways that further the goals of both individuals and Qal Yisrael. They're, they're not in and of themselves Harmful. That said, uh, some of the big social media giants that are operating today—and uh, this is not my own uh, deduction, but something uh, that the—you know—just just this week, a whistleblower came out with thousands of documents uh, that are really uh, very um, devastating to uh, Facebook, showing how how little this corporation cared uh, for the harm that it's doing in terms of uh, ripping apart societies, exposing um, very courageous people who stand up against dictators, uh, uh, diminishing the self-esteem of teenagers by showing them unrealistic uh, images. Uh, So it could be very harmful. And I think, again, ultimately we have to inoculate the young to understand that they cannot indiscriminately consume all of these media. It doesn't always help, and I don't have, I don't have a, an answer, but I do know that trying to shelter children from any knowledge of any outside influence is sometimes very counterproductive because we don't give them the tools that they need to deal with it when they, when they do inevitably come up
8: against it. Dr. Kalbach, thank you very much for your time.
5: My pleasure
8: Joining us from New York is Dr. Eli Shapiro. He is a, a psychologist. A digi- he's, his expertise is being a good digital citizen. He's spoken in front of Aguda many times at Aguda convention. He's speaking this year. He speaks at Yeshivas like Tar Vedas, Masaira, the OU. Welcome, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you. So. We live in a world, our parents, forget about our parents. I'm, I never imagined we would have a world like this, like a metaverse, right? How do we maintain a healthy relationship with all, uh, with the entire digital universe? And is it possible even? I mean, you go to a restaurant, you go. You see a couple going out on their anniversary. He's sitting looking at his phone the whole night. She's looking at his phone. I and mean, the only thing that they don't have what they have at home is that they're dressed up in somebody serving the food, right? I mean, you hear from him how... You know, kids' concentration has gone down to nanoseconds. As as a world used to be able to watch a video on YouTube that was three minutes, today that's become the equivalent of tortuously too long. Now TikTok has taken over, where that same video is 12 seconds. So. is it possible to to keep this loaded gun in our pocket and still have a healthy healthy relationships with others and with ourselves
6: so it's a great question you know um i think fundamentally there's um we have to understand that uh our lives would be significantly better socially, psychologically, behaviorally um, if we didn't have this technology. Uh, we we would just function on a higher level uh, if we didn't have it. But the reality is for the vast majority of us, you know, whether it's p- for professional reasons or personal reasons that we have to have uh, to some degree uh, technology. And, and a lot of it has shifted in the uh, portability uh, with the smartphones uh, compared to the internet of, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And the strategy that we have to incorporate to maximize the health opportunities, or the to mitigate the health challenges that technology presents. Is to really be thoughtful and deliberative when it comes to using technology. When we use it, how we use it, what we use. Uh, it's uh, you know thinking about the devices that we're using, thinking about the um, applications that we're, we're choosing to use, and a fundamental question we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis is uh, whether technology is serving as an enhancement in our lives or serving as an intrusion in our lives. And I. I think that if we maintain focus and really self-assess and self-regulate our behaviors with technology, then we can really mitigate those social, psychological, and behavioral challenges. Um, and you know the example you gave is really great when you're sitting at restaurants, but what if when you're sitting at home even, you know, when you're sitting at home with your family and it's dinner time or it's your children come home from school, what message are you sending when you're utilizing technology, uh, whether it's at the dinner table or when your children come home and you don't pick your head up to recognize their presence? All of that is impacted. And if, if we're thoughtful and deliberative with how we choose to utilize technology, then we can benefit from the conveniences and the enhancements that it brings. Uh, but if we're not thoughtful and deliberative, then it's going to serve as an intrusion and really have a negative impact on all those areas of functioning.
8: Let's go back from the ha. you know what I mean, the AYLAMHA Tsi list of ha siya. You know, we talk about eating healthy and exercising healthy. How many people do you know go to the gym four days a week yeah. or even three days a week? Not that many, Ellie, do you? Do you have any friends who go three, four days a week religiously that, to the that's gym?
3: A tall, that's a tall. order.
8: Right. So three we talk four about a month. Yeah. Yeah, three, four times a month. We talk about regulating sugar. Do you have a lot of friends who regulate their sugar intake? So we all know what the official guideline, the eating pyramid, is supposed to look like. So we can talk in a philosophical way about really regulating it. But like history has shown us that with donuts around, willpower doesn't last very long. So I'm going to ask: Is it really It's feasible for most people to regulate the internet or is it say, look, you have sugar, you have donuts, you have weight issues, 40% of America, or 35% is obese at this point and you know what? And now there's a new marker. and yes, we can look at it like gym and this and that and it's all halimus but really it's going to take over your life. Is Is that sadly becoming the reality? I,
6: I don't see it that way, um, you know. I, I think that people, when they're aware of things, they can self-regulate more. I just,
8: but can I interrupt for a minute? I'm reading from, just googled it. More than two thirds of adults in the Ameri- in the United States are overweight or obese. Seventy percent. So, you know, we talk about regu- self-regulation, and when it comes to things like, geez, this is your image. You walk around, you know, you, you, you know. There's a real negative image to, to you know, just that there's discriminations against, and people still can't handle that. So, do we really self regulate, yeah. or is it like it's a column?
6: No, I, because I think the, the statistic is, is a misleading statistic. The question really is when people are educated about their weight and their uh, health, do they make changes? And specifically to them, their experience, and I think that the number would be very different um, when you uh, when you look at that. You know, there's a a lot of research on violent video games and whether that results in violent behavior, and the studies go back and forth. But you have to really look at the methodology behind it. If you look at if you take a sample of kids that play violent video games, the research seems to suggest that they tend to engage in more violent behavior. But the sampling is wrong. You have to look at people that don't play violent video games and. See if violent video games cause violent behavior, as opposed to kids that might be drawn to violent video games because of a predisposition towards that. The education piece is critical, and it can't just be general education. It has to be specific, specific communities, specific families, helping them understand their dynamic and making changes, targeted behavioral changes. So, for example, in my house, we do something called going dark for dinner. Going dark for dinner is that at dinner time we decide that there is no technology at the table. No one's phones are around, no computers. Back in the day when when I was younger, when it was family dinner, if the phone rang, the wired phone against the wall, we wouldn't pick it up because it was dinner time. But somehow that behavior has changed as a result of the convenience and portability of phones in our pockets. But we can very easily uh, make decisions around that to... Um, you know, to say that we don't use the phone during dinner or we don't use the phone when our children come home from school. How many times, uh, you know, do you uh, as educators, we see a lot when uh, early childhood, when parents come to pick their children up from school, do they acknowledge their child getting in the car, look excited, welcome them back into the car, or are they... Uh, you know, distracted by their phones and by their devices. I think we have to give concrete examples um, uh, and strategies and really shift on a, uh, on a cultural level uh, some of the changes that we need to make within our engagement with technology. But it is a relatively new phenomenon, a relatively new challenge, only, you know, a, a decade or two
8: old. So if you had to say what a healthy relationship with technology looks like to your average Human, what would it sound like? What would your rules be? Give us your three or four rules. So I
6: think the first thing is to be thoughtful and deliberative when it comes to really making strategic decisions around technology. What do I really need versus what do I want? Um, you know, we, we tend to default that once I have the technology, I'm going to get every app, I'm going to get every social network, I'm going to get every uh, live video streaming service. Um, you know, I, I really applaud uh, individuals and communities that make strategic thoughts and, and, behave, and engage in strategic thoughts and behaviors around technology, where they say, okay, so I need ways, I need my banking. Now, these are some of the, the functional uh, productivity tools that I need, but I'm not going to download every social networking app and every distraction and every streaming service because that's not really enhancing that serving as a, as a distraction. And really, that's, that's step number one. We have to know the technology that we're using and and know how it impacts and affects us. And that really requires a, uh, you know, in in, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about taking a fearless moral inventory of your behavior and your uh, relationship with alcohol. And it's similar with technology. We have to take an inventory, a fearless inventory, about what aspects of technology is really necessary, what is enhancing, uh, and what is really serving as an intrusion.
8: Give us another rule.
6: A lot of the research, and I think particularly with kids and adults, uh, we're not sleeping enough because of technology, um, whether we're on our devices late at night. Um, you know, uh, we tend to get caught up um, and uh, distracted and not realize how much time goes by. Harvard did a study where they compared reading a book at bedtime and reading from an e-reader at bedtime. Um, and what they found was not not surprising. When you read a book at bedtime, you, you fall right asleep. And uh, when you read, when the... Uh, um, subjects in the study read from an e reader at bedtime, not only did it make it harder to fall asleep, the quality of their sleep was diminished as well. So, another good rule is understanding how the technology affects you around bedtime. If you want to get a good night's sleep, you should really stop with technology a half hour, 45 minutes before bedtime. What I've seen in many of the yeshivas that I've uh, worked with, at kids that do have devices, um, and again, this is not a statement on whether kids should have devices, but uh, kids that do have devices, and Not just smartphones, it could be an Amazon Kindle. When kids have devices next to their beds and they're sleeping with the you know devices within reach, they tend to stay up late. In fact, my own research um, on yeshivas and Jewish day schools across the country, more than seventy-five percent of kids that had devices slept with those devices within reach, and not coincidentally, those same kids were saying that they stay up late as a result of their technology.
8: Give us one more rule. The uh,
6: the the relationships that we have with each other, the quality of our social interactions with one o- another. Uh, has clearly diminished uh, over time as a result of technology. Uh, UCLA did a study where they measured uh, individuals' ability to read facial expressions and social cues. They, they, they were actually looking at the middle school kids, but the, it's been replicated with adults as well. So, ability to read facial and e- expressions and social cues are the foundation of. Um, quality social interactions. And so uh, they they got a baseline of these kids, and then they sent them to sleepaway camp without technology. And what they found was uh, they measured them again throughout the summer, and what they found was that after only five days without technology, their ability to read facial expressions and social cues and form meaningful connections with their peers vastly improved. And so that teaches us uh, two very, very important lessons. One is that digital technology is having a negative impact on the quality of our social interactions with our friends, with our spouses, with our children, but we can repair those Uh, the quality of the social interactions and the connectivity by disconnecting from technology.
8: Fabulous. What do you think of people who say, I have to have my phone on 24-7 in case somebody has to reach me from my office, from my home, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother. I need to be constantly wired.
3: So,
6: you know, it goes back to that question of being a fearless assessment of what your real needs are and what your wants really are. I once got the question, you know, uh, you know, well, are you telling me that an emergency room doctor shouldn't have their phone? So the answer is no. Obviously, an emergency room doctor should have their phone and, you know, be responsive to it. One of the nice parts about technology is that if you do, let's say, have a relative, an elderly parent, or you know a child that you know you're you need to be, maintain contact with you can set your phone you can set your devices to have do not disturb uh, times with select individuals that can push through um, so understanding the resources that technology offers can help in regulating the technology so you're not distracted by um, by what is not necessary but there is access to things that are necessary. Uh, It's interesting, there's uh, some research on productivity, and what they found was that it takes about 20 minutes to fully immerse yourself in a task where you're functioning at your highest level of productivity, Uh, so it takes about 20 minutes, but the average person checks their device every five or 10 minutes or so, whether they get a notification or not. It's just a compulsion to check the device. So for many of us, we're never actually hitting that highest level of productivity, and, and uh, and, and it's something called flow. Um, and so we're never seeing that highest level of flow because we are distracting ourselves with our devices.
8: I would hit would, um, on the following. I can't think, and I run a fairly sized business and you know have a pretty busy life. I can't think in the last five years of a single call that I got that I said, oh my goodness, if I didn't take this call now, if I had it, it took it in an hour or two hours, it would have made a difference. I mean, I can't think of an email that I had to respond to like this second. And if I just didn't say, you know, there's two hours in my day, lunchtime, you know, an hour after lunch, an hour after dinner, I got three emails. That would have made a difference. And I, I employ of thousands of people. You know, I remember my father's a friend, A guy came into the show, and he showed my father a watch. He said this guy was a wealthy fellow. He said he paid three hundred thousand dollars for the watch. My father was an old rav, and he looked at him and he says, like, what, what you know, ma you say, like, why? He says it could tell. Time to within a second a year. And my father looked at him and he said, Tell me, what do you do that second? So I challenge my listenership, and we will get, you know, and we'll get 20, 30, 40, 50,000. I challenge all of you to write down on a piece of paper an email that you received or a call that you received that if you had responded to an hour or two later would have made any difference.
6: Yeah, I want, I want to share with you. Just, I, I was doing uh, some consulting with a business on on workforce well-being and productivity. And so, a, a couple things that the research tells us about uh, technology engagement. Um, they compared they compared uh, people who check their emails compulsively, right, as they come in and, and they, they check and respond and check and respond, and people that designated a handful of times during the day that they would check their emails and respond to those emails, uh, let's just say at the top of the hour. So what was very interesting in the findings of the study was that not only did it reduce overall anxiety uh, in the people that, uh, or there were lower levels of anxiety in the individuals that would check um, on at designated times compared to those that, checked compulsively, so we had lower levels of anxiety, but we also had higher levels of productivity. They were actually much more productive uh, by designating time, reading emails, and responding to those emails. And to your point, uh, there is rarely an emergency that can't wait a little bit of time, uh, and your overall functioning as a person, both from a mental health standpoint and from a productivity standpoint, will be that much better. So in this workshop that I was doing, um, one, one individual came over to me afterwards and said, you know, I'm really addicted to my phone. I can't, I can't do what you're saying. I can't check at the top of the hour. I, 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 it's a compulsion. I can't help myself. Um, so I asked him, you know, what, what is the first thing you do in the morning? You know, when you wake up, you, you know, you wake up, say Modani, and then what? So he goes, well, actually, even before Modani, I, I check my phone. Uh, it's it's right next to my bed. So, um my suggestion was when you wake up in the morning, go to the bathroom brush your teeth and then check your phone how how much time are you delaying the actual checking of the phone at you know 7 a.m two minutes maybe three minutes on the outside but the power dynamic has shifted significantly it's not your phone dictating your schedule it's you are now taking uh, control over the phone so in, in i guess one more suggestion is making those really small nuanced changes that really won't result in a loss of business or a loss of contact or um, or some issue, but it really does change the power dynamic between who's
8: controlling who. So, Mama, take that leash off of me. Dr. Shapiro, thank you very much, and uh, I'm sure you can do a, a knockout job by the uh, convention. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kolta. Joining us from New Jersey is Rabbi Chaim Vishnevsky. He's the director of Yeshiva Hadas. He goes around the world traveling to yeshivas, high schools, uh, batte midrashim, etc. to talk about science and how we deal with it. Welcome, Rabbi Chaim.
7: Hi, good morning.
8: So how do, you teach, what's, how do we teach um, high school boys or I'm picking high school because that's usually the age or maybe elementary kids about science. That's not, you know, that's the Derech Yisrael Saba, but yet is sort of sensitive to the fact that the world has some different views today.
7: Sure. What I would say, one of the first things I do say is that the, the people think that there may be steerers between science and Yiddishkeit. And the reason why they think that is because they don't know much about science or they don't know much about certain areas of Yiddishkeit and therefore they think there's a steerer. So anything that's true science, not pseudoscience, is not a steerer to Yiddishkeit. There aren't any steeras to Yiddishkeit. It's mostly, mostly because of a lack of information, just plain ignorance in both Sukhya's. Most of the time, they don't know either well, Sometimes it's just one of them that they're, they're not familiar with. But in the major sugyas, whether it's the date of the universe or, or things they call up in anthropology or all kinds of different things, all these things, there are no steers within no Terra and, and science. What they don't know about science, for example, is the major scientific theories constantly are having overhauls. Science works with probabilities, things that are mustavary, that these are the case. There are very few absolutes in science. And when it comes to these things, people think that they're absolutely true they aren't, and science will constantly redact and change, and sometimes throw in the garbage can some of their theories. Oh, it's a changing thing. And with our Torah, if we have a real messiah of exactly what the Torah says, where it's not just we're kind of guessing, that never changes. And uh, that's why people think there are steers, either because, again, they don't know what the mystery really says about things or because they think science is absolute or they think that things that are just theories, when in fact they, they are very weak theories, sometimes they're not even theories, they're just hypotheses.
8: So how do you, age of the universe, how do you teach?
7: <laughs> okay, the age of the universe. Age of the universe is a good example of how do they know how old the universe is. It's not an absolute, it's far from an absolute. But there's a book that was written by Dr. Gerald Schroeder. Um, again, I'm not a scientist. I can only really quote what scientists say. He's a firm man who I used to lecture for Tara. And he wrote a book. Um, and in his book, he actually reconciles the fact that the terrorist says that the world was created in seven days with the billions of years that the scientists say that the world is old. And he says he uses Einstein's theory of relativity, which is the faster you go, the slower time goes. In other words, if someone's in a spaceship that's traveling millions of miles an hour, he will actually age much more slowly, where down on Earth he would have aged 100 years and the spaceship only aged a few days. And that's something that was tested and is considered today a viable thing as Einstein's theory of relativity. And based on that, if the world was moving very, very quickly in the creation of the world, what was today would be considered billions of years at that time would be only a a day or, or two days. And that's how he reconciles this whole subject of there's really no spirit, depends on how fast you're going.
8: And what about dinosaurs? How do you explain dinosaurs?
7: dinosaurs or there's a book called bone peddlers written by a fellow named robert fixler it's about carbon dating and this is a great example i'm so happy you asked this question because this is a perfect example when it comes to carbon dating carbon dating is something that's based on extrapolation that's how they date how old something is carbon is something that's in every living thing and as as they die there's a decay rate and there's less carbon based on on how long ago the thing expired. So if over 50 years there's one measure missing and over 100 years there's two measures missing, for example. So that's what carbon dating is based on. How little carbon is in there, that's how they tell how old it is. The only thing is they only actually watched the decay rate of carbon over the last 150 years. They're extrapolating that the decay rate has been the same based on that 150 years, thousands and thousands of years, which is not such a simple assumption. As a matter of fact, it's not really a great assumption. There are many factors that could have changed the decay rate, such as something as the Great marble, and there are scientists that speak about this. So the, the whole carbon dating is really very tenuous, and it's not something that's an actual fact. So basing things upon that is not a great way to date. Another way that they date things is based upon geology, the rocks. What kind of, uh, when they find things in certain stratums and, 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 and that, based on that, they date them. The thing is that we know that Aldo was created as an adult man, like a 20-year-old man. Somebody would see him, they wouldn't believe that he was a day old. So the same thing is with the earth. The earth was created in its maturity where something can actually look as as if it's much older than it is. It takes a certain amount of time to create oil or coal or things like that. But in reality, it was created very quickly. It just looks older than it is, just like Adam Harishan. And therefore, there is no stereo between the dating. The dating could be actually accurate, but it's accurate based upon what we see today, but not what happened at the time of creation when something was created in a second and it looks like... It's millions of years old or 20 years old, so there's actually no steerer whatsoever.
8: So you think dinosaurs, you mean, are like three or 4,000 years old?
7: I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know which answer is the answer. I don't know, but uh, there are certainly are different machachim. It's like any other kasha.
3: There are two roots
7: in, inami, iron, taisvus. You know, there's different ways to deal with these steers. So it's, the fact is that we don't shut down a kid for asking a question like that ever. You never gain anything by ever shutting anybody down because the question doesn't go away. Validate the question. It is a good question. But there are different mahalch and how to answer the question. I just don't know which one.
8: What are the questions you get from boys or girls about about science and and, and uh, the Torah?
7: Um, I, I've been asked about evolution much more in England than in the United States. The reason why in England it's, it's, it's a more prominent question because uh, according to the law there, they have to teach it in the schools in the United States it's asked much less it used to be asked more decades ago but now it's much less of an issue Um, and the whole evolution uh, is really it's a theory that has been revamped already there's something called neo-evolution today where it, it was a theory based upon some evidence it wasn't hypotheses but the evidence is very very weak and you talk to people who work in research labs not the high school teacher but the people who are really in the know and those people know that the theory of evolution is very very weak and I will go on to explain to them, there's the many weaknesses in the theory of evolution. The male, it's not a stira, but the truth is that evolution isn't a stira, but halal to shite to anything. All it is, according to them, is the factory that created, that produced the world. That so The world was the world produced instantaneously or over some period of time. It doesn't really make any difference, except being miyash of the psukim in the first seven days and the different ways of miyash of the psukim, like we mentioned before. And, uh, you know, whether Hashem decided to create the world through evolution or not, has nothing to do with anything. The real issue is intelligent design, and that is an issue to Emil Chuva. No one in their right mind would possibly entertain for a second that if you found a pencil in a forest, that the pencil got there by itself. If they did, they would put him in a straitjacket and send him off to the funny farm. No one in their right mind seriously would consider that something that could have happened through a tornado r- ripping through a junkyard. So, intelligent design is an amazingly powerful argument. It's mihubala bira, that's Avraham Avinu's argument. That's how he was makir Hashem, which has nothing to do with evolution. If the Rabbana decided to create it, you know, instantaneously or through some longer process, is irrelevant to the fact that it required intelligent design in order to produce this. And, um, you know, it's, it's really not, not an issue.
8: Rabbi Reb thank you very much for your time. Okay, you're welcome.